Good to see you all. That was okay. I think I heard you say something. Good morning, and it's good to see you. See, that's what I was looking for, and now I feel like you see me. Thank you. No, super honored to be with you, um, to share this time with you. All the regulars, like, just, it's always sweet to be with you, uh, not just, like, in this room, but even, like, when we run into each other out in the commons or out in the parking lot, just to, just to be with you is just an honor and a blessing for me every week. Those of you who are visiting, especially glad to have you, and, and hopefully um, this morning will be a blessing to you, and um, if you're here today looking for a church home, uh, this is not a perfect church, but it's a great place to come in contact with a perfect God who will meet you where you are and uh, do a powerful work there. So if that's you, we want to invite you to come be a part of what God's doing here at Solid Rock. Love to have you. Um, at the end, when you leave out, and we'll say this again, but we'll actually have elders out in that common area um, to answer any questions about the church that you might have just to help you get, kind of get your bearings on, on who we are as a church and where we're headed. So um, before we get started, we're going to be in Ephesians 2. Super excited about that this morning. Uh, I want to take a moment to honor somebody um, who's really important to our church, um, not just as a staff member, but as a member, and uh, somebody who's going to be moving to their next step in their career path. And so um, I'm really like, excited for them, but also kind of sad. Um, and so before I even tell you who it is, um, there are those in church or um, in maybe where you work who have positions that are more visible and tend to get credit when things go well and then maybe sometimes don't yeah they get the criticism when things don't go well but then there are those who work behind the scenes just faithfully and you know make sure everything is taken care of and rarely get honored or celebrated and so I just want to take a minute to honor Graham Gunn uh, he, he doesn't like the spotlight so we won't put one on him but he's sitting over here, if you know who he is. If you don't know who he is, it's because he faithfully serves in the background like crazy and has done so many different things for our church over the last several years from mowing the lawn. Like I've never seen anybody like reflect the love of Jesus in mowing the lawn. Like I mean that not to be funny, like literally like cares about everything that he does from from that to cleaning to maintenance and everything else that he does. And so um, if you know who he is, um, I want to just encourage you just to let him know how much you appreciate all that he's been doing. Uh, he is moving on now to go uh, to college and, uh, and start a different kind of trajectory in his career path. So we're excited about that, Graham, but we're also really thankful um, for all that you've contributed to the church, the way you've served, and uh, your humility in that. And then, and then beyond all that, we just love having you and your family as members here. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, just, just, a, just a hand of gratitude for Graham. That's that's for you. Hey, you don't get to clap for yourself. We're clapping for you. No, Graham, that's a small way. It's just saying how much we appreciate you, brother. Thanks for all you've done, seriously. And we're excited about where you're going. So, um, all right, so we're going to be in Ephesians 2. Um, the kind of subtitle for the series as we go through the book of Ephesians is the mystery of the gospel. And I want to continue to unpack that. Next week, we're really going to sit in that idea. Um, but when we talk about mystery of the gospel, um, on one hand, we mean things that we haven't discovered yet or learned yet. So we continue as Christ's followers, reading the Word, studying the Word, asking questions, engaging in, in not just in the Bible, but with the Spirit of God in, in this idea that there's truth to be discovered in the Bible that I have not yet discovered. Okay, That's one aspect of the mystery. There are things you and I don't know yet. However, there's a second aspect to the mystery that's really important to understand is that sometimes the things we've already discovered we don't fully understand. So it's not just about digging up information. If that were the case, um, that would be more like going to college and just getting information. We call that sit and get. 
But what we're talking about here is an experience with God's word where he reveals truths to you that wreck you, that perplex you, that cause you to take a step back and say, well, how does that work? And so the mystery is not just information that hasn't been discovered. It's also pressing into a deeper understanding of that which we've already heard, that which we already believe, and that which we already know. And so again, we'll settle in that next week when we get to chapter three. But we're in chapter two, and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I had intended to finish chapter two in one sweep, but the more I dug in, uh, the more I realized the last five verses really need to be unpacked on their own, and that's what we're going to do today, uh, the verses that Ken just read. Um, but even in digging into these five verses this week, I'm going to have to leave some things unspoken because there's so much there. Um, Ken, one of our elders who was reading, he was also leading our kind of pre-service time this morning, and he was talking about how he's like, I think we could spend a whole year in these five verses. Like, there's just so much here. And so we're going to um, do our best to get through as much as we can uh, this morning together. Uh, so I'm going to start with um, this. We left off two weeks ago with what Jesus has done through his death, burial, and resurrection to tear down dividing walls. It was a lot of like tearing down, tearing down hostility, tearing down the walls that divide us. So today we're really going to be talking about what he's doing to kind of build back up and put back together. And, uh, and we'll start in verse 18. So verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So what's interesting is in these five verses, Paul is going to um, present to us two different references to, to understanding God as a triune God. Um, I hadn't noticed it as much um, until this week's studying, just how clear he describes it here, this understanding that God is one, right? Three persons in one, right? God the Son, God the Father, God the Son. Now, there's one of those mysteries that should perplex you, okay? So if you want to raise your hand and go, I have that one figured out, I'm going to encourage you to keep digging. There's a mystery. There's, a, there's, a, there's something about that that we in our finite minds and thinking can't fully grasp, yet it's the way God chooses to reveal himself to us. So we were created in the image of God. And God says that, he says, in the image of God, um, in our image we will create them. God's referring to himself in plurality. And then now here in Ephesians 2, Paul is referencing the Son, the Spirit, the Father, or Son, the Spirit, God. He's going to do it twice. And so I want to talk for a minute about even though there's a piece of that, a large portion of that understanding of who God is that, that is a mystery, there's, there's, there's something from that that we can learn about ourselves. If we're image bearers created in the image of a God who is triune, then what does that say about you and me? And so there's some, and it's going to play out here in Ephesians 2, that what we see in the relationship between the Son and the Father, and the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Father gives us an indication of what our relationships are supposed to look like. And so what we see in the Trinity is this community, this relational community and unity within the Father, Son, and the Spirit. 
So I'm going to take a minute to talk about this. So I want to think about two aspects, community and unity. When you think about unity, I want to think about alignment. You and I align on something. When we think about community, that word, I want us to think more about how you and I relate together. Okay, so in friendship, we have community. When we get to the core of what we believe, the things that we believe that are the same, we have alignment, we have unity in that. Does that make sense? So I want to look now at, at God as a triune God and what, what that teaches us about community and unity before we start placing that or superimposing that on our relationships. Let's understand what it looks like within the Godhead so then you and I can understand how to work that out practically in our relationship with one another. All right, so here's, where, here's what I'm going to walk through. I'll give you, just kind of make this easier, uh, three A words. The first word is attunement. Okay, so we see attunement between, specifically between the Father and the Son. We're going to see this between the Son and the Spirit as well. But attunement, what do we mean by attunement? Well, attunement is this place where two, two can like really fully come to understand one another, attune to one another. So if you come up to me and you say, man, I'm really, I'm just really sad. And if I'm attuned to you, I'm going to feel a piece of that sadness. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about in the spirit, we're all unified through our different gifts. He says, but what? When one part of the body suffers, we all what? We feel it too. I can't feel and be a part of your suffering unless I'm attuned to you. So let's look for just a second. Think about just for a minute examples where we see attunement within the Trinity itself. Think about Jesus praying in the garden is probably the most obvious example. In the book of Matthew, there's this, this, this description of Jesus there in the garden. He knows he's about to get arrested and what's going to follow after that. He asks his disciples, hey, why don't you guys stay here and pray? And then they fall asleep. And, and part of Jesus' prayer to the Father is, he says, my soul is sorrowful, full of grief, even to the point of death. That was Jesus pouring his heart out to the Father. He wasn't even yet asking the Father to do anything. He was just saying, God, here's where I'm at. I'm full of sorrow right now, even to the point of death. Well, the second A word then is this idea of attend. Not like attendance, like you're being here, glad you're here. But what I mean is if I'm going to attend to you, that's where I care for you. That's where I not only kind of, oh, man, you're really in a bad place, but I take a step towards you, right, to help in some way. I attend to you. And we see this between the Father and the Son. Again, the example of Jesus. Jesus is actually asking the Father to do something. He's like, Father, if you can take this cup from me, this cup of suffering is heavy. And he asks the Father, is there any other way? God, will you attend to me? What's interesting is that um, even in earlier on in the, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is tempted in the desert, and we, we tend to focus on that story, the pieces of the temptation, how Jesus responded, which is all appropriate. But then do you know what happens at the, at the end? Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's tempted, and then the Father sends angels to minister to Jesus, to attend to him. Man, that is so sweet. So it's not enough for me just to attune to you then, like we see this attunement between father and son. Father, this is where I'm at. We see it on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father attunes to the son, but we also see the father attending to the son. 
And then this last word I would say is then alignment. How is Jesus' prayer in the garden end? Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so we see this alignment between the Son and the Father. Now, those are just some examples we can just see in that one prayer moment. You could look at the Gospel of John specifically and just see these beautiful moments between Father and Son. We don't get a ton of mention of the Spirit, um, but really the, 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 the Spirit is really going to take center stage at Pentecost. And now we're after Pentecost when Paul's writing this letter in Ephesians, and so there's references to the Son in him is what he says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to whom? The Father. So when we think about our relationship with God, we should think about Son, Spirit, Father. But then what we learn as image bearers, if we're going to emulate that relationship with one another, then we've got to be willing to attune to one another, attend to one another, working towards an alignment with one another, community and unity. And that's what's going to unfold now as he begins to describe who we are as the body of Christ. Before we go any further, this access word is really important. Um, This word in the Greek language would describe um, really a privileged access. The kind of access that you would receive if you were going before a king or before a judge. Okay, so that's the kind of weight behind this idea of access. You can't just knock on the king's door. You need more than an appointment. You need permission. Somebody has to ask the king if, if he will see you and get, grant you that access to come before the king or in the court of law, like I even think about today, like whenever you hear a lawyer say, you know, your honor, permission to approach the bench. That's a similar way. Like I recognize that unless you give me access, I don't have permission. And so the judge then grants permission and then the lawyer can approach the bench. Okay, that's the Greek word here in access. And so we have that kind of access through him by the Spirit to the Father. Like what Paul is saying is not that you have to come and, and hope you get that kind of permission. You, through Christ, if you're in Christ, you've already been granted that permission. Which is why in the book of Hebrews, the author talks about how we come into this throne room of grace with What? Do you know it? What is the word? Confidence. Because we've already been granted access to God. We don't stand out in the, in the courtyard hoping to get an appointment with him. We don't stand across the room asking, hey God, can I, can I come to your side of the room? What Christ has done for us is he's granted that access. So then, verse 19, what does that mean? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. It's who we used to be. It's no longer who we are, but now we are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. And we'll spend a ton of time here, but this idea of fellow citizens is that, that now we're, we're not necessarily in our homeland because our citizenship is in heaven, but we're with fellow citizens. Just trying to like wrap my mind around that, like being with your own people, but in a foreign land. That's where we are. Look, we're with our people, but not in our homeland. Um, A few years ago, I got to travel to to Europe, and um, one of uh, my favorite, one of the places I really wanted to see was Oxford, uh, England, and so we got to travel there, but specifically, there's um, a pub there called the Eagle and Child, and in the Eagle and Child, there's this room called the Rabbit Room, where 
Um, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and other inklings would exchange manuscripts, giving up one of their feedback on, you know, such works. I don't know if you've heard of like Chronicles of Narnia or, right, The Hobbit. And so for me, it was just like, I was just excited to be there and I felt just the, just the, the, the depth and the breadth of history walking into that place. And so I was mesmerized by that whole experience. But then something strange happened that caught me off guard. Um, I went up to order something to eat or drink or something, and somebody who wasn't with me in my group says my name. Like, I'm in Oxford, England. I'm a million miles away from my homeland, and somebody calls me by name. And I'll just never forget the feeling of like, oh, like, like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I was with my people for just a brief moment in a foreign land. Now, take that and blow it up. That's, that's you and I here. Texas isn't your homeland. You're like, I know, I'm from California. No, that's not your homeland. We're citizens in heaven, but you're with your people. And that's what the author of Hebrews describes. In Hebrews 11, there's a beautiful description of that. I commend it to you if you want to read more. He also refers to us as saints. This is a really important word. This is a description of not just like what God wants for you, but actually who you are. That means that you've been forgiven. You've been made righteous. You aren't trying to become a saint. It's not what's being described here. You already are a saint. Going back to perplexed, right? Like, whoa, not me. I mean, you're talking about all the other people in the room, but not me. Like, you don't know me. No, no, I'm talking about you. That's who Paul's talking about here. He's talking about all Christians. If you're in Christ... You've been rendered righteous, and now you're referred to as a saint. You're also going to be referred to as a priest. Well, how could that be possible? I know, perplexed, right? There's a mystery to that. But that's what Paul is saying. Like, in Christ, you now have access. You've been granted access to the Father by the Spirit, and you are now citizens. Now you're, you're with your people, and you are rendered as a saint. So when I read the New Testament and I see the Word of God addressing the saints, it's talking to me. You are a saint. And then you are, last but not least, a member of God's household, which seems to be where he's really going to settle in in this idea that we've been adopted into the family of God. So, the, so this idea, I've been granted access to the king and the judge, Yes, God is king, and he is the ultimate judge, and he's my father. How cool is that? Like that? He's dad. So I've been granted access, not just to the judge, not just to the king, but I've been granted access to my heavenly father, and I'm a member of his household. This will set us up then for these last three verses, starting in verse 20. This household is, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, again, describing you and I being joined together, grows into this holy temple in the Lord. And then in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's spend some time in the first part of verse 20, this built upon. 
This Greek word that's used is actually three Greek words put together. Um, it's the word epi, the word oikos, and the word doma. Uh, doma is the idea of to build upon or to build. Oikos, that's house, and epi is on. Like it's a preposition telling you on something. So they put all that together and we get this word that means to be built upon something. And that's, it's important to understand we're not just built, but we're built upon something. I don't know a great illustration, but maybe the idea, like if you were going to go build a new home and you were going to go to the bank and borrow money, they're going to want certain things from you, right? They're going to want to know your financials. Can you actually pay this money back? Okay, check. Okay, is the money we're lending you, is it equitable to the value of what you're building? Can you give us some drawings? Okay, check. But they're going to need to know the address where you're building this thing. You can't just go build it anywhere. What is the address? What is the lock, block, and number of where this dwelling is going? We need to know that. And you're obligated to build that house at that cost on that piece of property. And so you and I are being built together, but we're being built upon something specific. Built upon what? Built upon the prophets and the apostles. And we won't fully unpack this here. I believe what this is a reference to is essentially the sacred writings and teachings. When you see prophets being mentioned in the New Testament, the prophets, it's most often referring to the writings of the Old Testament. Sometimes it'll be referred to as the law, sometimes the law and the prophets and the writings. Luke 24, that's how Jesus refers to it here. I think prophets is kind of a summary of it all because it's, it's, it's put up against the idea or put next to the idea of the apostles. So keep in mind, when this is being written, we don't have the New Testament all put together like this. It's in, it's in pieces and scrolls and writing. It's later on when that actually gets put together or, or canonized. And so the idea here then, it, early on in the church, Acts 2, we want to know what they taught. Acts 2.42 says that they, here's what the early Christians were devoted to, the apostles' teachings. So I think this is a reference to the teachings of the apostles. What did they teach? They not only taught what Jesus did, said, and taught. So they said, this is what Jesus did. Here's what he said. Here's what he taught. But they, but they also referred to, so Jesus teaches about the Old Testament. Even in that, they're teaching about the Old Testament and how we would understand the Old Testament through Christ. And so I think this reference here is that we, you and I are being built upon. Our relationship with one another as image bearers reflecting a triune God has to be built on in a specific place. We can't be built upon anything else. The whole thing will fall down. We're built upon the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings and teachings of the prophets and the apostles. And so this is where we're being built. And then we get this beautiful illustration of Jesus being the cornerstone. This is going to, I think, literally and metaphorically pull all this together. So let's talk about just for a second about what a cornerstone is. Cornerstone is different from a keystone. If you have an arch, the stone in the center is a keystone. It's an important stone. Jesus could be thought of as a keystone in many ways, but this is a cornerstone. So if you go to build a building out here on a piece of property, the first thing you have to locate are your corners. Like until you locate your corners, you can't start. So usually like the concrete guys come in first, the foundation people, the first thing they do is they pull strings and find corners. Okay, so corners is really important. But what's really important about the corners is the first corner, where you start. That determines not just the location, but even the angle of the building. The first corner is the most important corner. 
You don't just put strings up and go, that'll do. You have to locate it. At this point in time, when construction would take place, they would locate the first corner, and they would set the first stone, and it was called the... There you go. A lot of times it was big and massive. Sometimes it looked like the rest of them, but it sits to mark the location and the angle of the building. And it's essentially what starts and holds the whole thing together. The whole corner going up vertically, right? It it takes this wall that wants to fall in or out and attaches it to this wall that wants to fall in or out. And somehow together at the corner, they stabilize one another. And so Jesus is this cornerstone that marks the location, sets the angle, and holds all things together. Colossians is going to say, essentially, he's the cornerstone of the universe. Now, in this passage, I think it's referring specifically to this relationship between Jews and Gentiles. It's a relational reference that he's holding you and I together as a cornerstone. So not only is he holding the cosmos together, keeping gravity and orbit and the universe in place, but he's working in our relationship with one another on a community unity level to hold us together. Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we are built upon the sacred writings and teachings, the prophets and the apostles, and Jesus is here holding this thing together. It's really beautiful and powerful imagery. Jesus himself teaches it this way. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. So we hear the words of Jesus, his teachings. We do them, believe them, grab hold of them, do them. We're like a wise man who builds his house on rock. What happens? The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The starting point was Christ himself, the cornerstone. And on the contrary, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You see how critical it is to understand that we're built upon these sacred writings and scriptures, the word of God. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the first stone set. Now that's important because what we're gonna learn in just a minute. So in Matthew 21, Jesus is actually going to refer to this idea of a cornerstone, quoting the Old Testament. It's just really cool how all this comes together. So Jesus is in, we're in New Testament, we're in the Gospel of of Matthew. He's teaching, and he's talking about cornerstone. And he's going to quote the Old Testament, Psalm 118. Here's what he says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the prophets and the apostles, the sacred teachings, the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is Psalm 118. Essentially, Jesus is saying, that Old Testament description of this cornerstone, that's me. And he says, here's how you'll know who the cornerstone is. He'll be the one that the builders reject. And we see that in Jesus' life, right? The cornerstone, I mean, excuse me, the, the stones that the builders reject were the stones that the, the builder looked at and said, this one won't do. It won't fit what I want to build. And that, that stone is tossed aside. And at the end of the project, all those stones are taken back out to the rock quarry and dumped back in the rock quarry, often with the garbage of the town. 
Think about that. Exemplified in Jesus' life. Our cornerstone was rejected, scorned by men, humiliated in public, beaten, crucified, and put to death. That was the rejection. But at the resurrection, this stone that the builders rejected threw into the pit was what? Resurrected to become our cornerstone. Peter, we won't read all this in 1 Peter chapter 2 is going to like connect this to us now. He says, but here's what you need to understand about you. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Oh, wait a second. There's a piece of Jesus' rejection that reminds me of my own rejection. There's a piece of how Jesus was treated that's similar to how I've been treated. You, as you come to him as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, what? Chosen and precious. So Jesus is the first stone. He's the cornerstone. But God keeps going back to the quarry, pulling stones out of the rubble, stones that have been rejected. God looks at a stone that has been rejected by man. Man has said, this one won't do. It doesn't fit what I want to do. And God says, oh, well, that one's precious and chosen to me. That's you. That's you. You have been chosen as precious to God. You're like, I kind of feel like I've been discarded. I've just thrown into the discard pile. And God says, yeah, and I pulled you out, dusted you off, shaped on you a little bit. Ephesians 2.10, you're his worksmanship, chiseling away. And Peter says, yes, we are chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. There's that word, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Be careful with words here. This building is not the house of God. You are. This is the house of God because God's people are here. That's what Peter and that's what Paul are saying. God didn't build a house and he lets you come in and out of it. No, you are the house. Paul will say it somewhere else. You are now the temple, the dwelling place of God. God dwells in you. In the same way, God used to dwell in the temple, and you could go there to find him, although you didn't have access to him, you knew he was in there. Now his spirit dwells in you. Perplexed? Mystery? Yeah. How does that work? It's like the little kid who's like looking in their mouth in a mirror with a flashlight, trying to find Jesus. He's in here somewhere. You know, like, yeah, it's this mystery, but it is nonetheless true. Just a couple of words I want to point out here. When earlier on in the passage, referring to who we already are in Christ, Paul uses past tense, but then he's going to use ongoing future tense here. I'll just point it out, talk about what it means. So starting in verse 20, built, past tense, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This idea, it's like, Jesus is still being the cornerstone. We're not just looking in past tense at what he did, but understand he is still working. 
He is still being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together. Ooh, there's a process you and I are part of. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We're still being joined together. Grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is still happening. I want to land just with one one more passage of scripture um, from the book of Hebrews, and I want you to listen to the parallels now, okay? For those of you who are Bible scholars, I'm not proposing that Paul wrote Hebrews. Just settle down, even though he probably did. I'm just kidding. So we don't know fully who wrote Hebrews. However, I just want you to listen for like the, the connections. Regardless of who wrote it, listen for these connections. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers... We're brothers, right? Members of the same household. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Does that sound familiar? We've already been granted access to the presence of God. How so? By the blood of Jesus. Oh, remember what he said? In him we have access. By the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. That's the curtain temple. That is through the flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. We're saints. We're priests. Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This gospel presented in the sacred scriptures. Let us hold fast to this. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let's let's attune to one another. Let's attend to one another. Let's align with one another and stir one another up in love to good works and good works. Not neglecting to what? Meet together. As is the habit of some. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't know who wrote love you brother on the bottom of my notes, but I love you too. That was really sweet. I just saw that. Here's where I want to land. That last verse of scripture, let us not neglect meeting together, sometimes gets leveraged as a way to guilt people into attending church. I'm not saying everybody does that. I've just heard that done. We read that passage and go, I guess I'm going to church today. The Bible says I've got to go to church today. Can I just share with you the heart behind this? What the author of Hebrews and what Paul wants you and I to see is that when we gather together as the saints, it's a sacred thing. It's not, it's not something to just approach flippantly. You didn't just fumble your way into here today. Like God was involved in bringing you here. And now that you're here, those of us who are in Christ, it is a sacred gathering of the household of God. All of our brothers and sisters aren't here, but the ones who are here, like, we're gathering together. And so that's why the author of Hebrews is like, hey, don't forsake this. This is sacred when you get together. Some are in the habit of doing that, but don't forsake it. Don't forsake gathering together. 
stirring one another up in love and works and encouragement. You can't do that if you're not together. So, if you attend here and I haven't seen you in a while, I want you to know you're missed, but I don't want you to feel guilty. There's a difference. Now, if you feel guilty, even after I tell you I miss you, that's on you. you right? Maybe you got daddy issues you need to work through. I don't know. What I'm saying is like, hey, I want you to feel missed. Not just by me, but by your brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to notice when you're not here, which is hard to do if we don't have a relationship with one another. But if we do, then we're going to notice you're going to feel missed. You're going to be celebrated when you come back. Okay? And so this isn't a, a Bible verse to like leverage people into like church attendance. This is an expression of a sacred thing that we have in Christ. We are fellow citizens. We're no longer strangers and aliens. We are members. We are saints and members of God's household. And it is a sacred thing when God's children gather together. Jesus said, actually, if two or three of you will gather in my name, I'll be with you. I will be in your midst. I want to land there today and maybe just ask some questions for reflection and then I'm I'm going to pray over us um, today and pray over you. Um, Here's just some things I want you to think about. What are the cornerstones of your life? Wait a second, I thought it was supposed to be Jesus. It is, but in practicality, we have a lot of cornerstones, things that we set in place and we build everything else around them. Your career can become your cornerstone. Careers aren't bad things, but right, your career can be the thing you set first and then build everything else around it. Your children, they're beautiful and I love them and they're precious, and, but they're lousy cornerstones. We don't set them first and then build everything else around them. Your career, your children can become a cornerstone. Your marriage, sacred should be held in high regard, treated with honor, but your marriage is a lousy cornerstone. If you set the marriage first and build everything else around it, the building won't stand. Okay, so when I ask that question, I really want you to think about what are the cornerstones in your life? What are the things that you set first? And then everything else is built around it. Is Jesus the cornerstone between you and your other brothers and sisters in Christ? Here's a couple ways you might know. When you have conflict, do you quickly gravitate towards Matthew 18, what Jesus told you to do when you have an issue with your brother or sister? Some of you are like, I didn't even know he said that. That's okay. Matthew 18, memorize that. Really helpful instructions on what to do relationally when you have conflict. Somebody has offended you, but it only works, listen, if Jesus is the cornerstone. That's actually where that promise that we're two or three gather, I'll be with them, that comes out of Matthew 18. That's his goal, is that you and I would be together in unity and community. He says, so if you have an issue with one another, here's what you do. Second Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's what it looks like when Jesus is the cornerstone between you and I. 
you'll see these things, patience and gentleness. And just think about your relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and this is where we'll just end today for you to think. When you think about your relationship with other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, ask yourself this, does my relationship with other Christians reflect the image of a triune God? Do I actually take time to attune my brothers and sisters? If I don't do that, there's no way I can actually attend to them, display care for them, that in the end we might align. So just want you to think about that. Does your relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, do those relationships reflect your theology, your belief in a triune God? Because at the end of the day, we're created as image bearers, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, your word this morning. We've got so much more there that we could unpack and will unpack over time. I just pray you would take what we've heard today and you would plant it like seeds in our hearts and that you would just give birth to growth and that we would, each one of us, from the members of this church to maybe a visitor who just walked in, God, everybody in this room, from the oldest to the youngest, you would plant these seeds of truth deep inside of us and then bring them to life. Um, Father, I pray for, is anybody here who doesn't know you, who doesn't know that they ha- have access to you or maybe didn't know that before they got here that today would be that day that they would step into that access and just understand that by faith trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone that all the promises that you've made to us come true Father we pray all this in Jesus name Amen